And join me in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. This morning we will be finishing the prophecy of the prophet Habakkuk as we look at verses 3 through 19. Our title of our sermon this morning is Our Great God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are holy, earth, and justice. Now, throughout the history of mankind, people have always sought to assure themselves that they have control of their lives, that they have control over their circumstances. And you and I, of course, are no different. It has always been the case, and as long as man walks on this earth, it will always be the case. We love us, and we have a wonderful plan for our own lives. And when it doesn't work out the way that we think it ought to, the way that we have it planned out, because we think we're in control, our tendency is to panic. Our tendency is to find people and circumstances that we can blame. Our tendency is to become frustrated and upset. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in someone's home in Lagos, Nigeria, waiting for my Uber driver to show up and bring me to the airport so I could fly to Port Harcourt. And the airport is about 20 minutes away from the house I was at, and I had to be checked in at least 45 minutes before my flight, even though they are rarely ever on time. So for my 9.30 flight, I asked my driver to be at the house at 8 o'clock. That would give me an hour to get checked in, to find some food, and to get a good spot to sit and wait for the inevitable delays. But by 8 o'clock, my driver wasn't there. By 8.30, my driver still wasn't there, and I started to panic a little bit. We were finally able to get in touch with him, and by 8.40, he arrived, and at 9 a.m., I was running into the airport, and I got checked in after much pleading with the manager to please let me on this flight, and then I was rushed through security because for the first time in what I think is probably a decade, the flight was right on time. And I got on the plane, I was dripping in sweat, I was frustrated, but I was relieved, and I was ready to settle in and to read a book to calm my nerves, and so I reached into my bag to pull out my iPad, and it wasn't there. And so I looked again, I checked my other bag, and it wasn't there. So what did I do? Well, I did what every reasonable person does when they cannot find their iPad in the world's most corrupt nation. I panicked, and I sweat even more, and my heart sped up, and, and I did what every reasonable man does when he loses his iPad in the most corrupt nation in the world. I thought, my wife is going to kill me because that thing wasn't cheap. And so I then do what every person does, and I start thinking about what of my children's stuff I can sell when I get home so I can buy a new iPad because I do everything on my iPad. It is the most useful earthly tool that I have in pastoral ministry, so they can wear the same clothes for a few days in a row for the sake of the gospel. 
And when the plane finally landed, I did the most reasonable thing anyone has ever done when losing their iPad in the most corrupt nation in the world. And I called my friend to suggest that he should help me contact the U.S. Embassy to see what kind of international pressure we could apply to make sure that I was reimbursed for my valuable piece of ministry equipment that was obviously stolen from me. It was then that he calmly suggested that I might need to just call the airport because maybe I left it at security when I was rushed through, and of course, that was entirely true. I was rushed through everything, and I had to take off my shoes and put my bag through, and I didn't take it out, and so it had to be taken out, and it was set aside by the x-ray machine, and it was left. And so I had my shoes in one hand and my bags in the other to catch my once-in-a-decade-on-time flight, And I told him that I would be very appreciative if he would contact Air Force Security and reassured him, as any reasonable person does who loses their iPad in the most corrupt nation in the world, that I was not really worried about it at all because I knew they had trustworthy security that would never take advantage of me. So we hung up, and I began to think through everything and realize that all of this was actually the driver's fault. If he would have just been on time, none of this would have happened at all. Now, my most valuable piece of ministry equipment is missing, and I'm supposed to just preach from something that very night without it, and and people are scurrying around trying to find it. I'm going to be entering into this international crisis that will likely involve the presidents of two nations if this isn't found, because this guy couldn't show up on time to pick me up. What was he thinking? Does he know how important I am to the stability of American and West African relations? And moments later, my friend calls back and tells me that indeed they found my iPad at security. And it had already been logged into their missing item book and stored away in a filing cabinet in the director's office and everything was safe. And I said what everyone who is reasonable, says when they lose an iPad in the most corrupt nation in the world. I said, that's fine. That's no big deal. I'll get it a few days from now when I come back. I'm not worried about it. I never was. But you see, my schedule is very important to me. And every minute counts. Everything needs to be on time. Everything needs to be exactly how I plan it. Or I might get the sense that I don't have control. I don't have a grip on everything. And that my circumstances are going to go in a direction I did not intend on them going. So in the end, I might prove to myself and God forbid to others that I am not sovereign over everything in my own little world. So I can blame shift and I can, I can panic and I can worry and I can think every, of every way to get things back on course my way. But in the end, how often are we willing to stop and say, you know what? The circumstances are what they are. They are the way that they are because God has designed this exactly as it is to teach me something. To give me perspective that I hadn't had to give me eyes to see in a way that I haven't seen before, to give me another reason to trust Him and to trust in His unfailing mercy and grace. Our perspective changes everything, doesn't it? We begin to see situations in the way that God sees them and intends them. We begin to see that things aren't always what they seem. 
And that our little freakouts, our little panics, our blame shifting, our anger, all of it was unnecessary and unwarranted if we would just stop our mouths long enough to focus on the Lord. And that's the process that we've seen Habakkuk going through as we've looked through this book. In the very beginning, he's saying, God, where are you? Why, why aren't you acting? What are you doing? How can you let all of this go on? All of these evil deeds, all of these people who surround me, why won't you deal with them? And then in the very end, where we are right now, he's saying, even though everything seems bad and backwards and upside down, I trust the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will find my joy in the God of my salvation. What brought about this change in Habakkuk? What brought about the shift from perplexity and being puzzled about the circumstances to great assurance? How did it go from complete confusion and anxiety to knowing that everything was going to be okay in the end? Habakkuk got more of the facts. He was brought to the end of himself. He was reminded that he, in fact, is not in control. But God is. And he saw God as God. He saw that God is, in fact, the sovereign one. He saw that God's will cannot be hindered, even though in that moment it may seem like everything is upside down and backwards. And God has summoned Habakkuk to remember who he is and for him to learn many important lessons, probably like you and I, lessons that he had to learn a second or a third time in his life. It was unlikely that a lot of what we've looked at in Habakkuk was coming to Habakkuk for the first time ever. It wasn't all new to him, but like you and I, he was a forgetful man, and he needed to be reminded of the truth of who God is and how God works and how he ought to look to God in all of his days. And we've learned along with the prophet that God is not bound to explain himself. He does whatever he pleases. Why? Why doesn't God explain his every action to us? Well, because more than anything, as we've learned through this entire series, he summons his creatures to trust in him, even in the midst of darkness and perplexity, and not in our ability to understand and explain and know all the details of what's going on. Do you remember that most important verse in Habakkuk? The most important verse in the entire book that we looked at in chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, the righteous shall live by his faith. Are you living by faith in Jesus Christ? That's what this story of Habakkuk is about. So let's read it together as we close out this great book, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 3. It's on page 786 in the Blue ESV Bible. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his uh, his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in Secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my bones tremble, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, three main things for us to see from the text this morning. The first we find in verses 3 through 15, and that is that we must look to the past to be assured of God's actions in the present and the future. Now, you recall that the book of Habakkuk began with the prophet asking two questions of God. Namely, he wanted to know, how long will the evil of the people of Judah last? And secondly, how long are you going to tolerate it? Everywhere he looked, the people of Judah were engaged in evil, were engaged in idolatry, were engaged in injustice, and he was crying out to God. He was sick of everything that he was seeing. And then remember, God responds by saying, oh yeah, about that, I'm going to raise up a pagan army, and they're going to punish my people for doing these bad things. The army, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they will do really bad things. They are ruthless, and they're going to be my means of judgment. And then Habakkuk had a double problem. His questions still weren't answered, and now he had to deal with the reality of God's answer. Is this really how it's going to be? God is going to, going to take us on with the people who seem to be even more evil than the people of Judah? And God responds, reminding Habakkuk that in the end, justice will prevail, the earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea, and the Chaldeans are not going to walk away from it all free of punishment. They too will face the penalty of their evil deeds. 
And then we saw Habakkuk finally resigned to the reality of the situation, sitting and waiting to see what God would do. He was humbled. He was, he was brought low. He was brought to a place where, remember, like Job, he had nothing else that he could do other than to cover his mouth in silence and wait on the Lord. So we saw a man who was frantic, he was, he was panicked, he had, a little, he, he had a sense that everything around him was falling apart and he had no control over it whatsoever and God had no problem with letting Habakkuk dwell there for a while that he could teach him the truth that indeed he had no control over the situation whatsoever. His circumstances were all in the hands of God, and, and there was no changing that. And so Habakkuk sat, and in, in, in chapter 3, remember, we, we get to this psalm or this song that we, we just read, that the prophet writes to praise our great God, to express his movement from sheer uh, and total chaos and disbelief and perplexity at the beginning to now showing his complete trust and rest in our great and marvelous God. And in these 12 verses, Habakkuk is standing in awe. Habakkuk is standing in awe, and he's filled with marvel and wonder at all of the great deeds of God. In essence, he's saying, look at what our great God has done throughout all of history. Isn't it awesome? Now, all of the things that Habakkuk describes throughout these verses can be found in earlier scriptures. I'm not going to go through all of them and point to what he's uh, pointing out, but most of them you've probably already identified if you're familiar with the Old Testament. But, but what's clear is what he's driving at on the whole, and that is that God will act on behalf of his church, and nothing will stand in his way. God is a God who demands a response. And God is a God who causes us to rise to our feet in adoration of who He is, to cover our mouths in awe, and to fall on our faces in humility before Him as we see Him as He is and we see ourselves as we are. But what I hope we see here is how it's done. We've looked at this many times, a few times here in Habakkuk. How does all of this come about? What is it that Habakkuk does to get to the place where he is assured with confidence that God is going to act on his behalf? Well, he looks to the past works of God to see what he has done and how he has proven himself faithful time and time again to his people, not just in the good times, but also in the scary times also in the difficult times, also in the times that were full of fear and anxiety and upset and tragedy. He was reminded that God is a covenant-keeping God and will keep covenant for a thousand generations. Now, how could he know that? How can you and I know that? I'm sure I sound like a broken record, but the longer I'm a pastor, the more I'm convinced of the sufficiency of the Scriptures for all of us. Listen, what Habakkuk truly wanted was peace with God. To know that he was safe and to know that he was secure ultimately with God. He was puzzled. He was scared. Things seemed out of control, but he wanted to know in the end that he was safe with God. And that's what you and I want to know as Christians. 
That's what we want. We may not identify that as what we want, but when you raise your concerns, when you raise your problems, when you raise your prayers to the Lord, what you are truly asking for is that you know you're safe in the Lord. What you're truly asking for is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to remind you, to comfort you. That's what Habakkuk wanted. That's what you and I want. And where does the Holy Spirit come from to work in our lives? How does the Holy Spirit work in us? Through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Word of God. If you think through everything that the Holy Spirit does, what is His job description? What does He do for the believer? You'll begin to see this. He brings conviction of sin. Well, how do I know what sin is? The Word of God tells me. He brings me comfort in God's promises. How do I know what God has promised that I might be comforted? The Word of God tells me. And so you see, we will be comforted by God, the Holy Spirit, in contemplating His past works, all that He has done throughout history to inform us of our hope in God's provision to take care of us in our lives, now and in the future. How? By studying and meditating upon the Word of God. And that's what Habakkuk was doing as he's recounting all of these marvelous deeds of God. And this is what you and I must do if we are to gain our footing in Christ. Listen, we, we spend a lot of time as we come together as the church studying the Word of God. We have Sunday school, we gather for corporate worship, we have Bible studies during the week, we have small groups during the week. Hopefully you're doing this at home, hopefully you're doing it on your own time, hopefully you're listening to sermons and and books you're reading and listening to on, on audio and everything else as we are getting more and more of the Word of God in our lives. And, and you know, it may not be for that moment right then and right there that you need to hear what you're hearing and you need to study what you're studying, but the Lord is adding all of that to your life so that when tragedy comes, when trials are before you, when suffering awaits you, that you're ready, that you're prepared that you stand on the solid ground of God and all of His works and all of His promises, that you might stand with confidence. That's what Habakkuk is doing here now. If you do not know the Word of God, you will have very little confidence in God when things are difficult, when challenges will arise, when, when life seems upside down and backwards because you've been tossed about by the waves of sorrow and suffering and doubt and sin. Your brothers and sisters in Christ can help you, they can encourage you, but unless you, unless you have possessed the Word of God in your heart, you will not have much to stand upon. So we must look to the past of what God has done to be assured of His actions in the present and in the future that we might stand with confidence. The second thing we see is that we don't, we, we, we don't want to just know the truth about God in our heads, but we want to know the power of the truth of God in our souls. Look again at verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. 
This is Habakkuk saying that all of these things are happening to him after he has recounted all of these deeds, all of these works of God that he's just meditated upon. This is his response. Now, you and I, as children of God, must have what is called a God consciousness about us in our lives. That we not just know about God, that we not just be able to recite theological truth about Him and be able to talk about Him and what He has done, but that we would truly know the power of the truth of God in our souls. That is, that we, that we would know God so profoundly that it moves everything about us. Not just our brain cells firing on on new concepts, but our hearts being moved, our emotions, our, our affections are genuinely transformed as we contemplate God. Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire treatise on this concept, and, and he wrote this. Uh, he said, Who will deny that true religion consists in great measure? in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul? or the fervent exercise of the heart. In other words, Edwards' concern, and our concern should be, that we simply never have the formality of religion in our lives. Being confessionally correct, but stone cold in our hearts. True Christian faith, true trust in a sovereign God, truly being able to stand with confidence upon the great works of God and His promises is more than just knowing that God exists and that God is in control. True Christianity is deeply and pervasively affectional. Love and joy and thankfulness and relief in our hearts, these are all godly affections that that mark true Christian professions of faith when we contemplate the marvels of the living God. We see the prophet now. He's not just moved in his mind and in his thinking, but even in his physical body as he contemplates all of who God is and how God acts and all that God has promised as he has shown his glory and his power. He's saying, I've listened and I've heard what the Lord has said. I've I've seen what the Lord has done and my body trembles. My lips are quivering. My legs are trembling. My guts are all turned upside down inside. This God is far greater than anything I could have ever imagined. Brothers and sisters, are you, are you embarrassed? Are you embarrassed that God might move you to such extents that it might even manifest itself physically and emotionally in your life? Does it embarrass you to think that you might be singing a, a song of the sweet gift of Jesus Christ that you might almost inadvertently lift your hands a little bit up from your sides? That tears might fall from your eyes? You can do that, you know. That's okay. You know you're in a Reformed Baptist church when everyone looks like statues as they sing. You can, you can move a little bit. You can cry tears of joy and thankfulness and gladness because of who God is and what He has done for you in Jesus Christ. It should move us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that we would be gripped and we would be changed. And all that is within us would rejoice in the Lord Jesus. 
Now, of course, the second this becomes about us, we've really lost a true sense of what we're even talking about, and and there's something to be said of orderliness and and reverence that the Lord calls us to, but we're not talking about excess here. We're, We're talking about our souls being stirred up by the Lord, our hearts being moved to such an extent that we would say, like Habakkuk, that our very bones are alive within us for God. Brethren, as you think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, as you consider the life that you were required to live to perfection but failed to live from the moment you were conceived, as you consider the death that you, the death that you should have died to spend an eternity in hell, as you consider that Christ lived that life for you and died that death on your behalf and was raised from the dead and now reigns and rules from heaven, giving his righteous standing to you as you have given your sins onto him on the cross, as you think about these wonderful, glorious truths, do they just land on you as old news? Is it sounding to you like I'm reading to you from yesterday's newspaper that you've already thrown in the recycling bin? Just old news. Maybe not fake news, but old news. Dear brother, dear sister, if this is true of you, I urge you to cry out to God that you might have a fresh wind of God's grace blown upon you that you might once again have your affections stirred up in Jesus Christ because you are in a dreadful place when the gospel is no longer full of hope and meaning for you, when it just lands upon you as old news. No one who has ever been truly mastered by the glory of God in Christ can remain cold-hearted and detached. And if you are in Christ and you are feeling cold-hearted and detached, throw yourself upon Him that He might give you a heart full of love and joy in Him alone. And friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ at all, it may sound to you like I'm advocating for some kind of emotional experience detached from truth and reality, but I'm not at all. I'm, I'm saying, based upon who God is and what we know to be true of Him in the person and work of Jesus Christ as it's revealed to us in the Word of God, when we have a real sense of God's majestic grace We will be deeply and powerfully and permanently affected in our inner person. And until that happens, until you become a new creation in Christ, I admit, I understand that all of this probably sounds crazy and embarrassing. But it's only in Christ that you actually find what you're so desperate for. If you're not in Christ, I can tell you that I know right now that what you are longing for is something you're not finding. Not because I'm smarter than you or greater than you or wiser than you, but because I was where you are before God made clear what I needed. And all of us, all of us who are in Christ as we sit here today, before God made clear to us what we needed in Christ, we were longing for something And what we really wanted in our lives was God's intervention. We want Him. We want Him to work in us. And yet we will search for it in every possible other way we can find. And rebellion to Him 
But we want to be moved. We want our bodies to tremble and our lips to quake at the sound of His voice. And our legs to tremble beneath us. Look to Christ for life. And by, and by faith, you can live upon Him instead of upon yourself, knowing that true joy comes when we are transformed by the grace and the mercy and the love of our great God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can sing with the psalmist, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory. When you encounter God as he is and how he works, the revelation shatters all of your fond, imagined notions about yourself and humbles you to the dust. Habakkuk was seeing this afresh as he moved, not only in his heart, but in his very body, because he wasn't just reciting truths that he had read and then he knew about God in his head. He was living in the power and the truth of God in the depths of his very soul. And when we know God in this way, we can trust God no matter what comes into our lives. No matter what comes into our lives, we can know him and trust him and love him. Well, the final point for us to see this morning, the final point of the prophecy of the prophet Habakkuk, is that no matter what may come, our refuge is found in our great God alone. Look again at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Dear brother and sister, is that your heart? Even if the cabinets are empty and the shelves at the grocery store are bare and the power is off and the water has all run dry, even if your children have abandoned the faith and have acted in rebellion against you, even if you wake up tomorrow and don't have a job, even if the doctor tells you you only have three months to live, even though the sky is falling and nothing is going right and your iPad is nowhere to be found, do you know in that moment who is in control of it all? Do you say, yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take great joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Is that something like our response? when everything is in disarray, when all of the circumstances in our life seem to get turned upside down, and when we think things are bad, they only get worse, and when we think they're at their worst, they even get worser. <laughs> you see, for Habakkuk, all that he was recalling began to fade away, and he returns to his present state of mind. He's thought through what God has done and who God is and now, as opposed to where we saw him at the very beginning, he doesn't have questions that continue to arise to his lips. He doesn't any longer have anguish that disturbs his peace. 
His outward circumstances haven't changed. They're no different than they were from the very beginning. Destruction and violence still mar his community. Strife and contention still arise. Nations still rage and devour those weaker than they. The arrogant still rule, the poor still suffer, the enslaved still labor with emptiness, and false gods are still worshipped on all of the earth. But Habakkuk knows who is working out his purposes unseen behind all of this turmoil. And Habakkuk now knows what the end of all of it will be. And so now he sings a song of trust. He sings a song of faithfulness. So I love that song we sing, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. Whatever He ordains is right. And behind sometimes, sometimes we have situations in our lives and it looks like God may be frowning on us, a frowning providence in our lives, but He's hiding a smiling face because He's working it all out for our good and for His glory. You see, for Habakkuk, evil still surrounded him. The Babylonians were still knocking on the door. But come what may, injustice, violence in his own society, devastating foreign invasion, God's destruction of the wicked in his world, he and the faithful like him can rejoice and even exult because God is our salvation and our hope. The Lord is our strength. He is our strength who not only sets us in the heights where no harm can reach us, but also sustains us in all of our life. It is Habakkuk's final amen to the promise that the righteous shall live by their faith. His final affirmation that nothing can separate him from the love of God. And so nothing can take away his joy in the God of his salvation. Can we live like that? Can we affirm Habakkuk's faith and know with certain joy that God is working his purposes out and that he will bring them all to completion? Can we join Habakkuk's song of trust and confess that nothing can take us away from all that God has given us as our sovereign Lord? Can we in the midst, even in the midst of an evil world, or on a bed of pain and suffering, can we, as our enemies confront us, or our our friends and our family prove untrue? Can we, when facing death, or when the powers of hell are unloosed on us, can we nevertheless join in Habakkuk's song? Many faithful men and women throughout the history of the church have have shared Habakkuk's faith and and so have also found his joy. I really encourage you to read through Fox's book of martyrs and to read about people who've been killed in the faith and the incredible, incredible faith they had in the midst of the most trying of all circumstances. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison, Nazi Germany, as he tried to work a plot for the assassination of Adolf Hitler. He sought to free the Jews from captivity and death. And from his Nazi prison cell, he wrote, By good powers wonderfully hidden, we await cheerfully, come what may. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this passage, he said, We may... Uh, We have been assured by people who think they know a great deal about the future that awful times are coming. Be it so. 
It need not alarm us, for the Lord reigneth. Stay yourself on the Lord, and you can rejoice in his name. If the worst comes to the worst, our refuge is in God. If the heavens shall fall, the God of heaven will stand. When God cannot take care of his people under heaven, he will take them above the heavens, and there they shall dwell with him. Therefore, as far as you are concerned, rest, for you shall stand at the end of the days. Rest. You and I must rest in our sovereign, great God. Yes, the word is sure. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is at work fulfilling his purposes. His kingdom comes. And yet, in the meantime, and forevermore, the righteous shall live by faith and not by sight, knowing that the Lord is for us and he is not working against us, even in his frowning providences. He is there, taking us by the hand, leading us on this journey that we might get safely to heaven's shores to rest with him forever and ever. And that, brothers and sisters, is our great God who has done all of this that we might love him and trust him all the more. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for your promise. And we thank you that we can come this morning and be reminded yet again that come what may in our lives, no matter what we face, no matter what trials and suffering and temptation lies ahead, no matter should death be knocking at our very door, we need not fear. We need not worry, but we can rest. We can rest in knowing that we are secure in a great and powerful and mighty God who has done all things to make us to be more like Christ. And we thank you, God, that your great concern is your own glory and that you point us to yourself as the greatest and highest treasure. And so, Father, for each of us, we all come this morning with various circumstances of life, different trials that we face, problems at work, difficulties at home, trials with our financial situations, wondering how things are going to get done on time the way they need to be done, difficulties in our health and even suffering and trials that come as our bodies break down as we come ravaged by the reality of sin, I pray, God, that whatever our circumstances are, that we come as a people resting in you, standing confident and faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray all of these things, knowing that you will work far greater and more abundantly than we could ever think or imagine. And so we pray all of this in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.